You're on the panel, RNZ Nash, and Wallace Chapman with you. I see that Acting Prime Minister Carmel Cipollone is, uh, has announced a uh, $6 million boost to food bank providers who have recently described record levels of need. So the latest uh, there, you'll hear more about that, I'm sure, on Checkpoint. But also uh, the news just to hand at 4 o'clock, the government will provide up to $5 million to the liquidators, liquidators rather, of Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, RAL, to ensure the mountains... 2023 ski season can go ahead, Regional Development Minister Kitty Allen says. Uh, Minister Allen also said the Crown has also received a further expression of interest to take over the ski operations on the mountain. This proposal from Te Ariki Tatamu Te Hiu on behalf of Tuwharitoa is in addition to the expressions of interest received from Whakapapa Holdings and Purituruwa. With us is John Chapman. No relation. Former elected member of the Waimarino Community Board and Raitahi resident has long been following this. Uh, kia ora, John. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Oh, this uh, is, uh, keep going. Yeah, this is excellent news. Um, it means that we've now got a, a, a further option on the table and one, for me, that is probably preferable um, given the... Uh, the various factors involved. Um, it, it presents us with an alternative that uh, uh, that gives us a, a, a much more streamlined cons- consultation uh, with regard to the concessions. Um, and it uh, presents us with uh, a ski field that it will eventually form part of the National Park Settlement, which will be run by EWI. Okay. Uh, well, Alexi, you've been following this quite closely. Actually, our reporter Sharon Brett Kelly has been for the detail, and her mm. podcast on, is on this tomorrow morning. So she's been down there last week um, talking about it. But yeah, what a great news that at least that the season is secured and hopefully into the future. Yeah, stay there, John James. Yeah, if we get some sort of overview, just the complexity of the stakeholders. I think I know yeah. that as a headline that it's extremely complex. But can John just give us some sort of overview of mm. of the stakeholders, John? Well, the stakeholders, as I understand it, on on, uh, on Iwi side are the uh, uh, are the on both sides of the mountain, north and south. Um, there is Fakapapa uh, Holdings and uh, Pure Terroir. Um, the uh, on the Iwi side, it, uh, it it means that the mountain will effectively be. Um, have a cultural component that it's never had before, should they be successful. Just on the, because uh, we talked to a, a journalist there last week, John, and just describing the feelings in the community, and it was almost one of shock, uh, you know, just not knowing actually the future uh, of the, t- the towns like Ohakuni. This will be really welcome news to the businesses there. Oh, it's been a roller coaster ride for all the residents in the area yeah. um, and, and the wider uh, wider area. There was concern over jobs and, and, and uh, you know the, the, the huge impact that would be felt if, if the ski field had been lost. Um, and you know, clearly, whatever route is taken by the by the liquidators now, uh, we're going to have a ski season, uh, and this is a real positive. You know, we're going to have jobs. We're going to have um, and businesses in Ahakuni will be able to uh, to trade this winter. It's, good on your job. Nice to have you on. Yeah, that's John Chapman there, former elected member of Waimari in the community board, right there, resident, and do uh, do apologise for that uh, phone line there. Uh, you'll hear more about that, I'm sure, uh, later.
Uh, on RNZ. 13 past four, but to this, Nationals Law and Order Policy was outlined on the weekend. Let's take a look. Chris Luxon said if elected, his party will clamp down on judges giving discounts of more than 40% on criminal sentences. Also, they'd curb the use of cultural reports considered as a mitigating factor in sentencing. And if a national government needed to fund more prisons and longer sentences in the short-term future, it would. It'll also bring back a version of the three strikes law. And since Labour has been in government, the prison population has fallen by over 20%. Labour said, well, this isn't costed. One prisoner costs around $193,000 a year. With us is defence lawyer John Munro. Kia ora, John. Kia ora. All right, so you're working at the coalface here. John, do you think, describe how it will work, if you think it will work how what will work, all the different policy changes that National's suggesting. Exactly, and particularly judges giving discounts of more than 40% on criminal sentences. Well, I'll, I'll deal with that matter first. I don't think it's right to straightjacket judges um, to, to limit them to 40%. Um, we've got to bear in mind that judges have a raft of information before them when they get to sentencing hearings. Quite often that information is intentionally private and it's not before the public domain. Um, and uh, often uh, the media don't necessarily report on it anyway. So um, in in some rare cases, the discounts are justified to get that high. We uh, There was Ruth Money, independent victims advocate Ruth Money, she was saying, look, survivors of crime feel the discounts are getting out of control. She cited one example... A person charged with multiple sexual violence charges who went from seven and a half years down to 12 months home detention, a 73% discount. Victims sitting there hearing this, a person ending up with home detention. Look, it's it's really difficult to try and comment on individual cases because (laughs) as the case you've just described to me, I could tell you about many, many cases which have had um, a similar type thing, but where the victim has been very happy with the outcome because the defendant has, has met with the complainant or the victim, has, has apologised and restored them, and, and they're young. And so sometimes the victim says, I don't want this person to go to prison. I want them to remain in the community, and, and uh, they agree with the sentence. And there's many, many of those sorts of cases too. So it's, it's difficult to sort of comment on individual cases sure. when there's just as many uh, the other way. Alexia. I think this is a typical, in a way, headline reactor from National. You know, you get cases, they hit the headlines, the sentencing comes, there's outrage at the sentence, but what people don't understand is what goes into the what has made up that person, how they've lived their life, what is wrong with them. You know, often they are severely mentally damaged or um, there's some major factor that just doesn't make it out into those stories. Um, it's either suppressed or it just doesn't come out at first flush. It doesn't make the headline. And nine times out of ten, when you go and find out a little bit deeper, look a little more closer, what is going on in this case, there are really good reasons for why that sentence is being given. And um, I agree with John. I think that's straight jacketing judges and it's crossing a line. I think it's politically crossing a line between justice and well, that's, politics. That's quite a strong thing to say there, Alexia, it's crossing a line. But, John, what would you make of that? Would this be impinging on a judge's independence, the judiciary having to be totally independent from politicians? Look, I I, I agree with Alexia because 
Um, I think the starting point we've got to remember also is that we appoint judges because they're good at judging, and that's what they're there for. They're logical, they're rational, and they do a good job. And so we need to trust that our judges do the right things when they judge. And, and of course, because they're human beings, sometimes there's a slip when one gets through the net and the media jump on it. But by and large, our judges are really good. They have a whole raft of information sometimes before them that they have to make their way through, and it's a difficult, difficult job because sentencing have become more and more complex over the years, and they're dealing with a, a whole range of issues. Um, and, and some of those issues, are, of course, they are um, making sure that the offender is accountable for the harm done to the victim and the community. Um, okay. And the interests of the victim, of course, are very, very important in that sentencing exercise. All right, John, we'll stay there. You're a, James, you're a lawyer. Well, I'm a lapsed lawyer now, Wallace. I'm oh. a lapsed lawyer. Um, I, National said they're going to get tough on crime, and I thought, I've heard that phrase before. I've heard that phrase before. <laughs> heard that phrase before. And I reflected back to the first election I'm aware of. It was 1975. That's the first election I think I was actually aware of. Uh, and um, there must have been like seven or 800 elections since then. But I looked at <laughs> I, Rob Muldoon campaigned in 74 and 75. National's going to get tough on crime. So... It's got that's got the lineage, and I'll guess what? It's an election year, and Dad's playing his well, greatest hits again. The yeah. other issue is uh, John raising the incarceration rates to help get crime under control. So, do you see that helping at all? There's been a little bit of a probing around um, since Labor the, has been in government. The prison population has fallen, which puts New Zealand more in line with other comparable countries. So, we are 149 people per 100,000. Australia, mm. 165. But back in 2018, we mm. were 213 per 100,000. What of that, John? Do you, how do you see that raising the prison rate to help get crime uh, under control? Yeah, can I say one quick thing about what James just said and, and, sure. and then I'll move on to your, your, yeah. your question. Um, I remember, I, I'm not as, I'm clearly not as old as James, so <laughs> I don't remember the 75 election, but I do remember 2010 when National said we're getting tough on crime and they brought in that awful three strikes law which was a disaster. So let's not let's not, not forget that. Um, now why why was it a disaster? Explain that. Why well, was it a disaster? Well, one of the reasons was a disaster that did straitjacket um, judges. They had no discretion um, to, try, to, to try and work outside, very little discretion to try and work outside that law. But also there was no data that came through ever, that I know of at least, that said it worked, that it reduced um, offending. In fact, the ones we did hear about, if I, um, we're actually, you know, did the opposite. No, Mark, really okay, John, John, uh, Mark yeah. Mitchell, he said, look, quoting, the biggest deterrent is a criminal knowing they'll be caught for their offending. You need yeah. to have consequences sitting behind that offence. And a lot of people listening to that this, 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 this afternoon will really agree with that and saying well, that makes sense to me. I think there are two different things there. Being caught is one thing, and I think that is personally a deterrent. Being caught by the police and, and we can have funds and resources that go into the police and making sure we catch crime, but consequences are the different thing. And I think as, a, as our society is, has a flawed thinking that punishment um, for a crime must equal prison. It doesn't. There are a raft of things that must be taken into account when we're dealing with sentencing, when judges deal with sentencing. And that yeah. is, um, you know, keeping the, 
communities safe, which of course is one, but also making sure that person, whoever it is, can reintegrate into our society at the right time and you know, the sentence fits overall with other sentences. Yeah, John, so, I think there's no good data, is there, that show that tells you that what sentence someone faces is a deterrent for crime? Yeah, yes, that's right. In fact, I, I, would, I would suggest um, that um, having more people in prison and getting prison sentences can do the opposite, in fact. Well, all and, they do is I learn how to do it better, don't they? That well, that's right, in jail. especially when yeah. you've got young people. I mean, uh, I, know, I know part of the platform the national government was saying about young people. Well, uh, young people make mistakes because they, they don't look at the consequences and they make mistakes just because they're young sometimes. And they're otherwise good people. So what are we going to do? Bang them up in prison to learn how to do things better and, and actually influence them by more hardened criminals? Or are we going to try and turn them into... Um, good members of our society. And and I've had many, many cases where they have got home detention, young people, and they do turn into good members of our society. All right. Very nice to have you on uh, the programme, John. Kia ora. That is uh, John Munro, a defence lawyer there. On that, your thoughts, most welcome on uh, that particular issue. What side are you on? Do you think that... Um, there should be a clampdown on judges giving discounts of more than 40% on criminal sentences. Do you think that uh, incarceration, uh, more incarceration is part of the fix or not? Text me, 2101. 23 pass for the panel. And are those large classrooms or smaller classrooms always a contentious topic, whether or not to have a more open plan or Keep the walls in for a more traditional classroom look. There is a move amongst some to actually put the walls back in. Said one principal, this kind of hot desking and sitting on beanbags and whatnot is really distressing for the kids. So I was quite keen to find out what the research says on open plan classrooms or flexible learning environments, as they're called. So I thought we'd bring in Paul Hayward. He's Associate Dean and Head of Initial Teacher Education at the University of Auckland. Paul, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to hear from you. Yes, good to have you here, Paul. What's the thinking around physical classroom size? Well, I think um, people have always talked about the architecture of schooling and what's optimal for learning. I mean, I'm a child of the 70s, so I I remember... um, being in one of the first open playing classes when they were the the rage in the 1970s. Yes. Um, I then ended up going into teaching, and some 10, 15 years later, I went back to that school as a student teacher, and all the walls had gone up. <laughs> and now I'm working in, in initial teacher education, and I spend a lot of time in schools. And, um, yeah, over the last 10 years, I've seen lots of – all of the new builds have been – innovative learning environments and most of the um, classrooms that are single cell are having the walls taken out so um, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that history is repeating and we're starting to to swing back the other way. Well I'm very pleased to hear you say that because I was thinking is my mind deceiving me or was I also not Alexia in an open plan classroom in the late 70s in Manorewa? Yeah, Alexia. I wasn't there, but I wasn't. Maybe I went to old-fashioned schools. But, <laughs> I mean, speaking for, about my own children, you know, who are both on the autism spectrum, my oldest son 
couldn't concentrate so much that he actually ended up working in the corner of the classroom with a cardboard box taped around his desk. And the other one would have had an absolute meltdown if he had you know, work in that. So it doesn't work for a lot of children who are that way inclined. However, we've just done a podcast, or Sharon Brett Kelly has, on the Hobsonville School, which has embraced all this and all these amazing new um, techniques and discoveries, and, and they, they love it. The kids love it. It's exploding, the population of that school. So... Horses for courses, I guess. Okay, stay there, Paul. James. Bring back the wooden desks, individual wooden desks in regimented <laughs> lines. Those in were the days. Li- those were the days. Oh, good memories. Inkwell, inkwell on the corner <laughs> and stuff. Naughty words scratched on the other side of the desk. Yeah. With your compass. Yeah, exactly. What's your question, James? <laughs> well, I, I just get the feeling this is very cyclical. In one period, you're going to say, let's go open plan, and then the next thought will be, actually, no, let's go back to something else. Almost like every time you get a consultant in, the consultant in they never tell you to keep mm. things as they are. They always end up recommending a change. <laughs> yeah. So I get the feeling that maybe that's, you know, it's going to it's cyclical. Is is that what it is, Paul? Is it cyclical, or is there a defined method? I mean, uh, from an outsider's perspective, if you're looking at teaching a fifty-plus child classroom, that would sound quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess there are some good reasons behind the thinking. Um, there was kind of a, a move to open up teachers' practice, so people started. Um, having greater dialogue about their practice and getting more feedback on their practice and and a a modern learning environment allows for that. It also allows, if it's done well, for the seamless integration of technology. But, I mean, one thing I think that that we need to kind of keep in mind is good teaching is good teaching. So good Mm. teachers fundamentally have an ethic of care for the students in their class. The kids know that their teacher cares for them. You've got that foundation in place, then it's all about being able to give really good feedback on learning to individual students at a level that's going to move them forward. Now, those two things can happen in a single cell classroom, in an independent learning or individual learning environment, or in a, um, in a clearing in a forest. A, a good pedagogy is good pedagogy. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, when my youngest son, um, he could not distinguish between voices at the back of the classroom or at the front of the classroom or what the teachers w- were saying. He just, his brain didn't separate those sounds out and open plan classrooms would have been a nightmare for him. He was, he was you know, behind enough and that would have been a nail in his coffin. Yep, yep. And I think um, the best, I mean, I've seen some extremely good um, integration of ILE into um, schools and the best ones have specific withdrawal spaces where students can go for more creative activities or if yeah. they need time away from people. Um, so, again, it comes back to those fundamental pedagogical principles of good feedback, good relationships, and being able to make use of whatever environment you're working in and being able to do those things. So I think we, we can get a little bit distracted by... Um, the, the, the kind of discussion of architecture, but I, I guess it, it costs a huge amount of money, so we probably yeah. shouldn't discuss it. It's very good to have you on, Paul. Kia ora. Appreciate your time. Um, that is Paul Hayward there, Associate Dean and Head of Initial Teacher Education at the University of Auckland. Uh, you better response on that, whether or not your uh, daughter or son uh, thrives in an open classroom. It was interesting to hear you say about the Hobsonville uh, case, uh, Alexia. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you, you know, it's a brand new school mm. to, um, to, you know, because of the whole area is being developed, all that new housing around there. Um, and it's not the only difference they have. They have modules and 
bins or something instead of classroom times. And the kids, a lot of the learning is in the kids' own hands, and it's a lot of response. You know, they teach them yeah. early responsibility. It's quite. Fascinating. Here's one. Flexibility is key. Flexible spaces and experienced teachers working flexibly works. Old rooms with walls banged out and teachers given inadequate professional development is obviously not going to work. Plenty of single-cell classes fail large numbers of children too. Uh, and a bit of response regarding uh, the crime store nationals uh, policy rolled out. Um, so here's one. A friend's son, aged 23, was assaulted and has a permanent head injury and now has to wear glasses as his sight was also affected. The perpetrator, aged 41, this was his third similar offence, told a sob story about a hard upbringing and only gets a curfew and told no alcohol. Now where's the fairness in that story? 